Hello, welcome to Pod Bless Canada, a special recording from the McDonald Lurie Institute. I'm delighted to have you with us today. My name is Ken Coates. I'm the senior fellow at the McDonald Lurie Institute with responsibilities in the area of Indigenous affairs, and natural resource development. And I'm joined here today by my two colleagues, Melissa Mabarki and Chris Senke, two very talented Indigenous commentators on contemporary affairs. And we're going to talk today about UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. You're currently going through the House of Commons in the form of Bill C-15, which will make UNDRIP a part of the law of the land in Canada. My two colleagues have excellent expertise in this at the community level, at the national level, they understand what's going on and bring a very different perspective to this important national debate. Chris, great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. And Melissa, wonderful that you're with us today as well. Thanks for having me on this podcast. So I'm going to ask you both to sort of help us walk through this document. I'm going to ask Melissa first, and Chris, you're going to ask you the same question right afterwards. So what is your reaction to UNDRIP? to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People as a piece of Canadian law or policy, if you want to call it that more broadly. So, Melissa, what's your thought about this? My issue with this bill is that it doesn't clearly define Indigenous. It doesn't define their land. And I'm not sure as a First Nations person from the Treaty 4 area if this bill even includes me. Um, There are no definitions in it. And also it's a bill that is just cramming a ton of issues into one where they should be pieced out into separate acts and that therefore we would be able to measure them, measure the success of some of these implementations. So these are the biggest issues that I see right now with the act. Great. Thank you. Chris, over to you. What's your thought about UNDRIP as a piece of government policy? For the most part, much of the stuff that pertains in the act itself, we've been doing for a better part of 10 to 15 years. But that being said, it's quite easy to agree with Melissa. I feel that much of the stuff in the bill that they're trying to pass is crammed in. I feel like it's being marginalized. It's kind of one of those things. Let's, let's get this in now and negotiate later. The other thing that is I find incredibly frustrating is negotiating by region. And they're speaking in meeting with organizations as a representation of Indigenous people. But I disagree with that because governments should be meeting with the rightful title holders. They should be meeting with these communities to have input and say, and particularly where I'm from, the Coast Simshian, we are right in the middle of significant amount of economic development. And to leave out communities like mine, I disagree with. They should be speaking to those communities that are generating wealth for the province, if not the country. So I'm going to put this question back to you in hopefully a very provocative way. If you look at UNDRIP as a national declaration, it actually talks about the need for free, prior, and informed consent from Indigenous peoples on any piece of national legislation or government legislation or policy that relates to Indigenous people. Chris, based on what you've said, and Melissa, you've hinted at this as well, it seems to me, and this would be a great irony, the UNDRIP legislation, Bill C-15, does not actually meet UNDRIP requirements. It actually does not do what it compels all other government agencies to do in the future. Melissa, is that a fair criticism? 
It is definitely a fair criticism. The thing that I find worrisome about this act is that it does not reference the Indian Act. There are almost 1 million First Nations people that fall under this act, and it is not referenced at all. So that essentially takes away my right to be able to voice my concerns um, either today or on future projects. It didn't consult Métis settlements. They weren't represented in this. And I'm not 100% sure if they've gone to the Inuit and asked or even gotten feedback about Bill C-15. So this is very concerning in that we weren't consulted. Yes, certain organizations may have been, but the people that actually make up this act weren't. And that's where I find issue with it. Um, why weren't we allowed to maybe take some of these important issues out and have them in their own separate acts? One of them being the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, their recommendations. Why wasn't this an act on its own? Why wasn't the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls a separate act? And it goes back to my central issue was that it's all bundled into one and it's not going to work without proper consultation. And they failed this very important step in the process. That's a burning indictment. It's even sad to hear you say it that way. Chris, your thoughts on whether UNDRIP legislation, Bill C-15, actually meets the standard of UNDRIP? Well, I, my understanding is that it's supposed to take over for the Indian Act. It's so convoluted, it's really difficult to accept because there's just so much bundled into one act. I know I've had this discussion with plenty of leaders and I've had this discussion with those that are quite tight. They don't agree that social welfare, economic development, education, just who we are as Indigenous peoples grouped into one act. I believe, in my opinion, that I feel like it's just more of a leapfrogging. My question, I guess, would be back to the government is that what happens if you don't follow through? What accountability is there back to those that are implementing this act if they don't follow through? You know, historically, we've had policies and legislation inflicted on us and with the intention to make our lives better so we can be a part of Canada and not apart from Canada. What happens when that isn't followed through? For me, there's just so many more questions. I feel like this is being rushed. Again, I keep going back that I feel that they, they want to pass this act and then negotiate later. But again, they should be speaking to the rightful title holders and not that of a regional approach or organizations in the metropolitan area. I disagree with that. It's so interesting. I mean, many of our listeners may not automatically sort of understand the reference there, but both Melissa and Chris, you've made the same point, that the rights holders are the First Nations people, the Métis, the Inuit folks. They're also the, the local governments, the actual individual, the 636-plus First Nations, plus the, you know, the Métis settlements, not just the Métis organizations. And it's ironic that they do not, a lot of them actually are saying, quite pointedly, that they've not been consulted on this. As I was reflecting on this, it seems to me that under the legislation, Bill C-15, can be described as a promise to make promises. In other words, the legislation doesn't have a budget. It doesn't have timelines. It doesn't have detailed action plans. It doesn't have responsibilities. And as Chris pointed out, it doesn't have accountabilities. Is that a good description, Melissa? Would you describe this also as a promise to make promises rather than something more substantial? That's exactly what it is. We've been dealing with 
inadequate housing. We've been dealing with boil water advisories. We've been dealing with policing, mental health issues. These issues have not been addressed in our communities, yet this act has a section where it talks about the minimum standard of survival. Well, this is currently not happening. What's going to ensure that it will in the future? Like, how do you even measure any of this in the act? And who's going to be accountable for reporting on it? There's too many questions and not enough answers. It's like you said, it's a promise of a promise. Well, we've been waiting for clean water for how many decades? This was an issue when my grandfather was a child. It's still an issue today. So who's going to be held accountable and who's going to be speaking on behalf of every single one of these issues in the act. I don't know how that's all going to play out in the future. Is it just going to be a promise and then it's going to be pushed to the sidelines and only used when certain groups can benefit from it? That's my worry. And we've seen that happen. We've seen the federal and provincial governments cherry pick who they want to negotiate with. Coming from a community and taking our voice away from our chief and council, that worries me a lot as a band member. And I think it should worry the 600 plus communities across the First Nations communities across Canada as well, because their voice might be overshadowed by someone who feels they know what's best for them. That's really, really interesting. And, and just to be clear, Melissa, because I, and this is a point that I think we don't make often enough. When you talk about a multi-generational problem with access to clean water, that is actually not something that very many non-Indigenous people have to deal with. In fact, the number of non-Indigenous communities that have long-term water problems is very, very small, tiny, tiny compared to the total number. But in fact, in First Nations communities, it's distressingly commonplace. Chris, your thoughts on this idea of Bill C-15 being a promise to make promises. In your mind, is that an appropriate description? I, I think it's a bit of an understatement, but I think that this bill is just so, there's so much more to this. I just don't foresee anybody, let alone the government, hold their end up in this agreement because it's just so complex. It's so difficult. It's going to be so difficult to implement. You have to think that it's only been the last few years they're trying to implement this. They already implemented the first part of it at the BC level. Now they want to do it at the federal level. This thing is going to take 10, 15 years. The area I come from is there was always this free prior informed consent. And I think where our people and the general public in general is getting confused is that they think that the UNDRIP bill is to for us to have veto. It is to help us to have greater say over our resources and control of our education and social well-being. However, when you look at it from a business perspective, our people completely misunderstand what free prior and informed consent is. They absolutely think it's 100% veto. Some of them misunderstand. It's about the process, not what you receive. So, for instance, if I'm negotiating on behalf of a community and there are 10 things on the item list that they want, if I walk away with three or between three and five and I may not be happy that I don't attain the rest, as long as I'm satisfied with the process in general through the negotiations, that's free prior informed consent. I think uh, the people or the general public needs to understand that's how that process works. It doesn't mean that we're going to get 100% of everything in our ask. Uh, that's what negotiation is all about. 
And if you could get more than that between five and seven, we've been pretty good about retaining our wants when we were in these negotiations, from my personal experience. But I know there are a lot of communities that have received less. So what does that mean to government? I mean, again, I, I speak with some very credible leaders and they believe there are things we can take away from under right now. But what happens, again, my question is when government doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, what sort of accountability and mechanism is placed to hold those accountable for this? That's a scary and worrisome sort of observation. So let me ask you a a more pointed question. Bill C-15 is going through the parliament now uh, before the Senate very shortly. There's a forum with relatively few uh, Indigenous people debating back and forth whether this is a good or a bad thing, which always strikes me as more than a little bit odd. But Melissa, what would you do right now with Bill C-15? It's before the House of Commons, uh, before the Senate eventually. The government is determined to pass it through. They have actually imposed closure to stop debate, which is tragic in its own way. But Melissa, what would you do with Bill C-15? I would ask for some clear definitions in this act. Chris brought up some really good points on who's accountable and when they don't follow through, what's going to happen? And who speaks on behalf of this? Under the definition of Indigenous, who is allowed to speak on certain issues? And are they allowed to go onto a reserve and speak on behalf of that community? This is the only bill, and I've worked with a lot of regulations and acts. This is probably one of the very few that I've seen that doesn't have a clear definition of the group of people they're talking about, as well as it doesn't define the land that they're talking about. They keep referring to their land. What land? Is it the reserve land? Is it public land? Is like, what land are they speaking about? They really need to be clear in this act on who this is for, because as it sits right now, it doesn't reference the Indian Act. So therefore it doesn't represent me and a million other Indigenous folks in Canada. Fascinating. Chris, your thoughts on what you would do with Bill C-15? I, again, the definition is unclear. I really believe they need to go back and meet with their the elected body and clearly define what it is they're trying to impose or trying to pass because we all know there's a big push to incorporate or at least involve the hereditary system. What I disagree with and from what I've seen is that you have governments negotiating with those that are stating that they are title holders to the land. There's disputes within communities over all that. And it's causing all sorts of problems because no one could quite confirm who's who. And, and there's always these disagreements. And it's just a recipe for disaster. What they should be doing is really looking at how best they can support the hereditary system as a separate issue. If they're really that serious about helping us organize our hereditary system, perhaps the the hereditary body needs to start and put together an organization where they can at least uh, raise some dollars to start that whole design and rebuild and making sure that the rightful title holders are, are within that hereditary system. But trying to incorporate the hereditary system and assuming that all of us are organized and that all the rightful title holder names are in place is completely not true. There's a lot of disagreements and it's not just one 
community. It's several communities that are in the same boat. And it's a difficult spot to put not only the hereditary in, but you're also, as referred to Melissa's statement, you're totally discrediting the governing body who was elected by the people to govern the people and the community. There's so much more work that has to be put into this, but using that as a leverage, especially when it pertains to development, economic development, right in the middle of that. They're doing a disservice to the community. They're doing a disservice to their hereditary body. And Canada and, and our provincial governments are putting themselves in an extremely difficult, difficult position. So this is disheartening, but very insightful. So your comments have been extremely, extremely helpful. But let me just ask the question in a somewhat different way. Over the last six months, perhaps a year, UNDRIP has taken up an enormous amount of political oxygen. A lot of the commentary on Indigenous affairs in Canada has focused on this. My own personal sense is that this is not resonating with the public at large. If UNDRIP is to be a statement, it really isn't about a partisan statement of the Liberal government or the Conservative Party or the NDP. Then really, UNDRIP to be really valid has to be sort of a declaration from the, the country at large. When I look at UNDRIP, this is the part that makes me the most sad that we should be having a fulsome national debate. We should have Indigenous folks knowing that that non-Indigenous people embrace this on a very broad scale, that this is a sort of the starting point of a different relationship with Indigenous people and the rest of the country. But of course, that we're now getting is we're getting closure. It's happening in the House of Commons. We're in the middle of a pandemic. My sense is that very few Canadians are currently paying much attention to this. So I'm interested in your thoughts on, if not UNDRIP, what? What would you have the government of Canada do right now if it sort of put Bill C-15 on the back burner and turned its attentions to the most important issues facing Indigenous people? And so, Melissa and, and Chris, perhaps this is your chance to be Prime Minister for the day, but, but Melissa, what would you do instead if you weren't doing UNDRIP if the government wasn't spending a lot of its political capital on UNDRIP, what would you want the government of Canada to do instead? That's a really good question. The first thing I would do is I would go back to the Indian Act and start looking at the amendments that were proposed. Some of these amendments have been sitting on the back burner for years. And this is one of the reasons why many reserves cannot move ahead. They're being bottlenecked at certain points and not allowed to move forward, I would give these communities more autonomy to make decisions for themselves, to source other avenues of income, to look at economic development a little bit differently and be able to get out there and to be able to source their own investments and to be able to invest in what they want, not what is dictated to us. Um, we have to have that freedom to be able to make decisions on our own. Now, whether that falls into the amendment of the Indian Act or even a development of a new sort of act that encompasses everyone, because at the end of the day, we want to work together. We want to build Canada up, but we cannot do it when we have these different forms of colonialism. Bill C-15 essentially is that. Although it speaks of rejecting it, that's what it is. It's giving us an added layer of bureaucracy to go through. It's giving us more red tape. It's giving us more hurdles. And it's actually preventing us from moving forward. We have to start looking at ways that we can give reserves 
more say, more autonomy, get them involved on a provincial and federal level, however that looks, get their leadership involved in countrywide decisions. We need to start having these conversations and we need to start including these communities and not excluding them as we see with how I see it as undripped. This is just going to give us more red tape to go through. And it's unfortunate because there's a lot of really good items in here, but a lot of these items are also in the Indian Act. A lot of these items, like Chris have said, we're currently working through. We're, we've been doing this for decades. So we we need to figure out a way how we can go about doing this without having it legislated, because having things legislated is going to hold us back even more. Wow. Thank you very much, Melissa. Chris, you're in charge of the country and you got to decide between proceeding with Bill C-15 or going in a new direction. What would you have Canada do? You know, I'm always about how do Indigenous communities access capital. For So for me, I, if I was in the position of Prime Minister, I would focus more so on economic development, start generating the dollars our communities need, focus on the needs and all of that takes money. We understand that the social welfare, our culture, our language, infrastructure, all of that is important to us. But you can't do that without money. And I, I find within our culture and our people, we're always so afraid to talk about money. But money is what we need to move our communities forward. And from my experience in understanding all of this is that when we generated revenue back into the community, people found jobs. People found that they uh, were more independent. They felt better about themselves when we were able to produce jobs and sign contracts and move forward within our territory. While we're trying to define UNDRIP, it is a simple way to start generating revenue independently with us depending on the government. Isn't that what we're all trying to strive for, is that we become a part of Canada and not have to rely on government funds or government grants? And I get that it does help a lot of us, but we're to really truly become a sovereign nation. We need to start generating wealth for ourselves. And when you have money like this, you can start to look at the services that we need to accommodate our elders, to accommodate our culture, to accommodate our language and arts. It all takes money and economic development, true economic development, where you're free to make your own decisions through free prior informed consent will help help so many of our communities across this country get out of poverty and start managing wealth. But trying to implement it as is, I just don't foresee it going very smoothly, but I also foresee a significant amount of challenges. It doesn't mean that I don't support UNDRIP. I don't agree with its current status. I just think there's going to be more problems that are going to arise. I'm also finding that I also believe that, take this with a grain of salt, many of these organizations that represent urban Indigenous people feel left out of the economic engine. And I also believe that they're trying to accommodate those that are living in the metropolitan areas. But how do you make an argument for that when people living within the territory haven't even been able to get involved in a lot of these opportunities, with the exception of a few communities, like such as ours? So how can you put a leg up for yourselves when you're living in the metropolitan area when so many of our communities are below the poverty line and you're in these organizations and the regional uh, approach is making decisions for people that don't get to have a greater say in the process? You just referenced earlier, Ken, that this is in the House and it's being debated with a number of non-Indigenous people. It's just crazy. 
you know, I, I, I just think it could have been done better. So, Melissa and Chris, you've both been magnificent. This has been an excellent, excellent conversation. And I, I must tell you, uh, I'm not sure if you both know, but I'm an historian by training and spent my professional career looking at the history of Indigenous newcomer relations in Canada. And, and if you go back over hundreds of years, you can see time and time again the missed opportunities when Canada had a chance to do it right and chose to do it wrong. And I, I sort of agree with what both of you have been saying very much in the sense that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with UNDRIP. UNDRIP is a statement of the vision of a world in which Indigenous people have opportunity, sort of shared decision-making, and have the kind of fundamental autonomy that Melissa was actually talking about. So the question isn't about UNDRIP. The question is about Bill C-15 and whether this actually moves the agenda forward. And I've always said that Canada has broken so many promises to, to First Nations, Métis, and, and Inuit people that we just need to stop doing that. And yet I see Bill C-15 as a promise waiting to be broken, in part because it's not a single promise. It's a vague, very general, sort of loosey-goosey kind of statement of good feelings that does not have an accountability measure other than reporting back to Parliament. Nobody's going to lose their job if they haven't done their job. Well, government is going to fall if they haven't maintained these commitments. Chris Sankey and Melissa Barkey, you have been absolutely wonderful. Um, I'm delighted to have you here with us on Pod Bless Canada at McDonald Laurie Institute. This has been a very, very thoughtful discussion about UNDRIP and about Bill C-15. I look forward to many of these conversations in the future. Melissa, thank you very much. And Chris, thank you very much as well. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for having me, Ken. Appreciate it.